Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Um, as you're turning there, uh, out in the foyer on the, the announcements um, for the missionaries, last week I'd mentioned about Susan Georgie and her appendix um, that was on the process of rupturing, and there was a delay getting her to the hospital. Um, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, she actually got the surgery, the appendix is out, and she wrote an email, um, and, and so the email's pinned to the board, so if you'd like to see, you know, I'm not, there's no way I can regurgitate what she said, but, but she, um, she wrote a, an email basically thanking us for our support and prayers to those who are there for her, and she's, she's pretty much doped up and recovering at this point, so, and, uh, you know, poor, you know, I don't want to say poor Andrea, you know, he's, uh, he's got, he's got his you know, you, you, it's like wife appreciation once your wife goes down. So that's all I'll say. So I've been texting him and harassing him for like how out of control it must be and the girl's hair I'm sure is a mess. And, you know, um, so this afternoon's the Super Bowl party. It's always a lot of fun, just a time of fellowship. I'm definitely a little uh, guarded because John Trory posted on my Facebook wall this morning that in honor of the Super Bowl, that every time the, the pastor makes a good point that they're going to dump Gatorade on my head sort of thing. So I want to... I want to, you know, not, try not to make good points this morning, but at the same time, I also said, I dare you, you know, so we'll, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, okay, with that, well, let's pray, and we'll get into our text. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you, um, Lord, for being our God. Lord, we thank you for the life that we have in Christ. We thank you um, that we can call you Father. Lord, I pray um, that as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, that you would, um, you would help us through this text today, Lord, that, is, uh, that really is a sad story of, of two different groups um, rejecting you. And, and Lord, we, um, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for being so patient, um, so persistent with us, for I know that I rejected you for many years. And so, Lord, I've come to see um, your patience, your kindness, really your deep love for me. And so, Father, I, I pray that as we look at this story, um, Lord, ultimately that you would soften our hearts for you, Lord, that you would help us um, to, to really to give you our lives, to trust you with our lives, Lord, that, um, Lord, that you would free us um, from the sins of our, our parents and our own mistakes, Lord, um, that we would walk with you, Lord, in this life. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother's James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. 
He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd, and they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word, Lord. Uh, this is a, a, a tragic story um, in, in many respects today, Lord, that we're looking at here in the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, I pray that your spirit would, um, Lord, help us to know um, what was said in context, what happened here historically. Um, Father, may your spirit guide us. Lord, may you soften our hearts, Lord, and help us um, to see um, applications um, from this story, Lord, in our life, um, some 2,000 years removed um, from these incidences. Uh, Lord, we do love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Okay, so this, I, I, could, I could hear as I sort of ended the story about John the Baptist, you know, it's like the guy had his, cut, his head cut off and delivered to somebody on a platter. Um, tragic story, uh, even more so, not more so, but, but this is really two tragic stories. This is uh, Jesus' hometown rejecting him. Uh, going through Matthew, we see rejection after rejection after rejection. Um, chapter 12, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had rejected Jesus. He spends most of chapter 13 speaking in parables. And now uh, Matthew sort of moves the story to Nazareth, his hometown, and we see that his hometown, uh, he's rejected there, and then this whole story about um, a Herod uh, sort of unfolds, and and so there's just total rejection, total discouragement. I, I knew I was in trouble through the week as, as, you know, Anne has been trying to make some graphics and funny pictures and pictures, and she's like, you're in trouble this Sunday. I'm like, hey, hey, and uh and so as we sort of look at the first verse here, up in verse 53, we read, when Jesus had finished these parables, uh, there, remember there were seven parables that we looked at in the last two weeks. Um, uh, when he finished the parables, he departed from there and he came to his hometown. So I have a little map here. Uh, okay, perfect. So we have, so this little graph we see about 13 miles shows us um, the, 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 from, from north to south, how long the Sea of Galilee is. I believe that's about seven miles across, if my memory's right. Uh, most of Jesus' ministry happened up in Capernaum. Uh, in this region here, there was a synagogue. There was sort of a triangle, uh, Beth, uh, Bethsaida, and then up here, Chorazin was up here. There's sort of a triangle where most of his miracles happened. Um, all of this area is really walking distance. They, they walked everywhere. So the story moves... Um, from Capernaum 
uh, down over to Nazareth. I, I believe it's about 20 miles. Um, you know, it would have been about a day's journey for them. Uh, they, they would have walked there. They could have walked in this whole, this whole region. My little red dot is uh, all over the place here. Tiberias is another important city uh, for the second half of our story. Tiberias um, is the location where Herod lived. His, his uh, I don't know if his palace, but definitely his, his uh, nicer home was there, and he, he reigned and ruled over the region of Galilee, but we'll, we'll get to that. So we look at our story. Jesus finishes parables. He moves, the story moves um, from Capernaum over to Nazareth, the sort of uh, uh, up in the hills, still in the region of Galilee. Um, this was his hometown. Uh, we know that Jesus was born down in Bethlehem, uh, and then, uh, but, but really he was raised up in Nazareth. This is where his hometown was, where, where he grew up as a child, lived a very normal and ordinary life. Um, and in his adult years, he sort of migrated down to Capernaum, where uh, his earthly ministry really took place in Capernaum, a- away from his home. Okay, so verse 53, we see what Jesus had finished the parables, he departed from there, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And so the synagogue um, was different than sort of how we understand church today. So, so this building is a building where the, you know, the church meets. We, we who are believers, we're the church. We, when we gather, we meet at this building. This, this, this building isn't necessarily a special building. It's just a building. I mean, we're, we're very thankful for this building. It provides a ministry for us. But the church is, is those who, who follow Christ, who have given their lives to Christ, who the Holy Spirit is within. We, we are the church. And so when we, if, if, we, if we were to meet on the, I'm looking at Joel, if we were to meet at the golf course praying over Joel and his swing, and the, <laughs> or maybe really for Jim's window, we should, you know, like that. Uh, if we were all there, the church would be there. And, and so the church is sort of this moving object. It's not necessarily the building. Um, but thinking of the building, this building, for the most part, there's really people here on Sundays. It's when, when the congregation comes, we gather, we worship. Um, during the week, there's normally you know one or two people here. There's certain events that happen throughout the week. But in large part, the church gathers at this building on, on Sundays, the synagogue was very different. The synagogue was sort of the, the sort of the, it was the heart of the community. Um, every single day of the week, it's where the community gathered. It was sort of in the Old Testament, what we um, know as the, the city gate where, where day-to-day business was transacted, where, where kids came and they learned to read. They, they learned by reading um, the Torah. So they would use the scriptures to teach the children and and, and it was just really the, the heart of the community. And so we see that Jesus goes into Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, and he begins teaching. Now, his teaching, as he begins teaching them, um, we see that they are astonished. Um, th- this word astonished is a Greek word that literally means to strike out of one's senses, to be stunned. Or, or to be hit with a blow. It's sort of the picture of somebody, you know, getting a punch to the nose and sort of trying to orientate themselves, like, what just happened? Um, you know, tears start coming to their eyes. Like, what in the world happened? And so that's how um, the, the Jesus' teaching is described. They're, they're flabbergasted is another um, 
idea that, that, that surfaces from this word. Um, he was a powerful, masterful teacher. Jesus hasn't been to his home, hometown in about nine months. If we, if we were to sort of piece together the Gospels and try to put it in chronological order, which the Gospel of Matthew is not in chronological order, um, we would see that the, the last time Jesus was here was about nine months ago, and it would, it's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 29. And in that story, Jesus comes to his synagogue. Um, all of the scripture readings were sort of pre-planned like years in advance. Like it wasn't like that the, 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 the teacher would show up and just say, well, today I'm going to teach out of this passage. It was more that the teacher was handed the passage and said, teach from this passage. And Jesus sat down, and, and I forget the exact passage, but it was a passage from Isaiah that essentially described a, a, the, 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 the prophetic uh, coming of the Messiah. And Jesus reads the passage, and he says, today it has been fulfilled. So he says, as I read this, pro- prophesying that the Messiah is going to come and is going to teach, as I did this, it has been fulfilled. And now they weren't happy with this. And the story sort of unfolds that they chase him out of town. Um, outside of Nazareth, there's a, there's a, a, a mountain um, known as the Precipice. And uh, you, can, you can look out and see all over everything. And there's a sharp cliff there. And basically, they, the whole town goes to try to execute Jesus by throwing him off that cliff. Because according to their perception, uh, Jesus blasphemed because he claimed to be God by with what he said. And so Jesus hasn't been back in nine months. Uh, and looking at this story, I'm encouraged that Jesus did go back. Um, he didn't just give up on them, and God doesn't just give up on us. You might, have think, you, you might think that, well, I've committed all these great sins. I've done this stuff. There's no way that God would forgive me or, or, or work in my life through this. But throughout this, we, throughout the whole Bible, we see God's long-suffering, his, his patience towards us, his persistence towards us, that it's never too late to turn your life over to God. And we see here in the story that Jesus, yet again, he goes back. The last time he went there, he was run out of town. They were trying to kill him, yet he goes back. We see in his teaching, they're overwhelmed by his message. And they asked the first question. There's about four questions that, that they sort of asked. The first question is, is where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, we're told at the end of this passage that because of their unbelief that Jesus, he, he didn't do many miracles there. But, it, but saying that he didn't do many means that he did some. And so whatever he did, we don't know what he did. We know that his teaching was overwhelming. They see his teaching. They're sort of stopped in their tracks, and they're asking the question, where did the power come from that he has to teach like this? And the, the reality is, is there's only two questions that, or two answers to their one question. The, the answer could either be God gave him this power, or it's of Satan, which describes in the Pharisees, um, had already sort of, that, that was their conclusion with his miracles. And, and the issue that I think that is their greatest stumbling block was the, the, the ordinary 
Is, is that a word? Ord, ordin, that Jesus was so ordinary. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man. And yet this town, th- this, this town saw a little stinker, you know, Jesus being raised. You know, I'm thinking about this story, sort of thinking about, you know, we're laughing about, you know, you know, one of the kids, a lot of kids, but I'll just hold my kid responsible. <laughs> it's, it doesn't take long as you're searching this building on a Monday morning that in the corners of this building, there are little shot glasses, not shot glasses, literally, but the little flavored creamers. You'll find a corner and there'll be like three open creamers, clearly the kid, little kids. I know I busted Gideon doing shots of like hazelnut in the back room, like with, thinking nobody's looking at him. And so we see, when we see, like when we're, when we're familiar with somebody, they're, the, they, they're not who you think the Messiah is. And so they said, where did, where did, this, where did this power come from? They asked the next question in verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they all not with us? So there are three questions that are asked sort of in this. The, the, the first question, the, the father is, is asked in a way that supports the belief that by the time Jesus was an adult... His, his earthly father, stepfather, Joseph, had, had passed away. He's sort of distinct from the group. Um, it, it, it's believed that he, he passed on before this. I, I want to make a comment on Carpenter because uh, Carpenter, in, in, in our vernacular, we think of woodworking. We think of um, guys who frame out walls, guys who do finished work on things that I, that I, that I don't have the gifting to do. Um, and there were the, the the Greek word for carpenter is tecton, and this is um, Lunida. If I'm anywhere close to my notes here, let's see if I uh, okay. Um, Lunida says this about the word. It says there is every reason to believe that in biblical times, uh, the one one who was regarded as a tecton would be skilled in the use of wood, stone, and possibly even metal. So if you if you go to the to Israel today and you look at the ancient buildings, you go to all of the ancient. All of the buildings are made by stone. And so these are really like stone mason. It would have been sort of, their primary work would have been with stone. But then as they were finishing it, they would use wood to sort of push it, uh, put it together. And so a lot of times we think, well, Jesus like was whittling a stick or something. But I kind of, I think that his upbringing, he was, a, he was a, probably a hard, tough, like you've ever met a brick mason? Those guys are, 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 are strong, strong, hardworking guys. And, uh. So that's more of the picture that I have of Jesus. But they say, well, what about Joseph? Isn't this a carpenter, the, 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 the son of Joseph? Like, we know this kid. Then, then he asks the same thing about his, his mother. Uh, and so, so here I have to address sort of, is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? So some, because of because of the Catholics' influence in Christianity and their teaching about the perpetual virginity of marriage, that doctrine, that's not a doctrine that's squared with Scripture, they've got to say, oh, these are like cousins, and, and it, they're not really 
brothers, because Mary was a perpetual virgin. She never, which just isn't the case. Like, and if you do the math here, there's James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, four, his sisters. That has to be at least two. Some believe that there was even three. So Jesus was likely one child, the oldest of like seven or eight, seven at a minimum, possibly eight or more siblings. And so they're going, clearly his teaching is powerful. But they were so familiar with him. They, 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 they knew all about him. And so the power with his stories, their familiarness with Jesus sort of put a roadblock on to accepting who he was. And one lesson in this story that sort of really concerns me. See, I, I wasn't really a church kid that grew up with all the stories. But I'm concerned about our young people and young people in the church who are so, they just hear the story, well, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, because I was, my whole family's a Christian. I was born into Christianity. And I've heard all the stories. And the whole, the, the awesomeness and the mightiness behind who Christ is is lost to, him, to them because they're just so familiar. And I'm not saying like, oh, like, go send your kids out and let them go run in the streets and shoot heroin and do all this stuff so that then they can like... <laughs> But I think it's something that we, we like, like even for us who have walked with Jesus, that we that there's this growing familiar familiarness, and so we sort of, it's it, that that Jesus is our co-pilot, and so we just sort of lose the awness of who He is. And I think that there's a warning. They they were so familiar. They, they say, well, where did this man get all these things? This can't be the little Jesus that we knew growing up. It says, and they took offense at him. The irony there, he should be, or he should be offended at them, yet he's so patient with them that he keeps going back to them. But the scriptures record that, that here they are, that the people of Jesus' hometown, the Nazarenes, they, they are offended at sort of the, the, the perceived arrogance of Jesus. But it's not arrogance because he actually is the Messiah. He actually is the one fulfilling these prophecies. He actually is God with us. And then Jesus said to them, quoting from a very popular sort of proverb of the day, he said, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. So he says, a prophet, a prophet has honor everywhere he goes. You travel around the world, a prophet is respected, he's honored, he could walk into any synagogue. Jesus could walk into any synagogue and just start teaching. It's not like, you're some, who are you? Like, we can't do this. The Apostle Paul, same thing. They, wherever they went, it's like, there's great respect and honor, and, and you're welcome to speak and teach. But he says, but in his own hometown, and his own family, is not the case. And he says, they're rejecting me because they're so close to me, um, that they can't see who I really am. It's funny. This is a verse. Um, this, this this summer, I'm 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 excited. Um, you, for those of you who know um, Ben Fredericks, I know Don knows Ben Fredericks, and Christina knows Ben Fredericks. There's a similarity. You know, um, Ben is a young man that we've been sort of like mentoring and working with over the years. He's been at Moody Bible Institute. He's a, he's a he's what they call a super senior or a super junior. Excuse me. 
because he's pursuing um, like two different, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm really, uh, two different degrees or, or, or highlights. So, so he has enough credit that he could graduate, but he's going to have like two um, focuses when he, when he comes or when he graduates next year. And so he, he's at the point where he needs to do sort of an internship. And because he's on the biblical languages preaching track, um, it it's, it's, can be difficult to find an internship that, that, that fits um, the requirements of the school because not many pastors will give up the pulpit to give what's required. And so he's, we've been communicating for probably nine months. Well, we've been communicating for a long time, but over the last like nine months or so, um, we've been talking about this upcoming summer and having him do an internship. And, and I said, well, you know, we would, I would love to have you do an internship here. And, and, and I'm like, it pains me to, to like the thought of not teaching for like six weeks is, is, is like, I get fidgety and, uh, start driving people crazy because it's like oh like all this extra energy let's do other stuff and so i said no ben you can you you know you can um like we'll have you come so for july he's going to preach for six weeks we're going to go through the book of titus and and uh he's he's you know we're going to be mentoring him we're going to i it's like a really a formal process at the end of the six weeks we actually as his home church uh, we're going to have a combined service and we're going to license him into the ministry as a pastor but but in our conversation, I'm like, you need to go to this one verse about Jesus, <laughs> because you're kind of coming back to your hometown, and Ben's been doing a lot of hard work. He's been grow like he's he's maturing, he's growing in the Word. But when he comes back here, he's got a bunch of brothers that are like, that's just Ben, and and, and so I'm gonna have to like, you know, now he's not Jesus, he's not a prophet, so like there's room for harassment, but he he. <laughs> He's going to have a much harder road to, to tow here than if he was at some weird church, not weird church, some different church <laughs> where nobody knows him. He can just come in like, I'm Ben. I'm like a Moody Bible Institute. I'm a, like, like, look at me. Well, he comes in here. It's like, dude, you caused us like so much heartache. Like, you know, so, so, but, it, but there, there's, there's, we're going to experience this this summer. And so I'm excited about, like, I really am excited to see, like, what God has been doing in Ben's life and what, where he's going, but, um, but he's going to have to deal with what Jesus is dealing with because we all know him and we knew him when he was, like, well, some of us knew him when he was, like, way, way, way small. Um, and so, but Ben's not Jesus, just for the record, if, if, just, uh, if he listens to this. Um, <clears throat> So Jesus says, this isn't to be surprised. Like, this is my hometown. They're rejecting me. They're familiar with me. And we're told in verse 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Um, This is, you know, it makes me wonder. that the, The thing that as I look at that verse, it says that Jesus was working. He was operating. Um, but we see that God sort of, uh, in, in one vein, God operates and, and he moves where he's welcome in people's lives. Uh, I, I wonder how many times in my, in my life that my unbelief, my lack of faith, sort of um, restricted my capacity, my ability, or, or kind of moved God along the road for that season to let me kind of wallow in my whatever I was doing. Um, there seems to be something that if we desire God, we want to see him work. How, um, 
You know, you pray before you swing the golf club, Joel. This is like, I think it's God speaking to you. I don't know. Joel just gave me a punching bag today. This is Larry's homesick, so now I have Joel, you know. it's. But it's kind of like, you know, God moves and he prompts and we respond. And if we, when we respond, we see him move and then he sort of opens the door to the next thing. But if we say, sorry, God, I'm not going to do that, then we sort of, it's easy to miss out on the opportunities. So we see at this time, this word time is not chronos. Uh, Matthew's not going chronologically. This is uh, kind of like it could mean in this season, in this window. Matthew's moving the story along. And between verse 1 and really somewhere between verses 13 or 14, it, it gets a little, it, it gets a little confusing. Um, so let's just, I've been kind of figuring out, how do I lay this out before you without keep getting you guys confused? Um, so the first thing we read is, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his, well, okay, I don't want to get ahead too far. I'm going to stop there. So, so we're introduced to this character, Herod the Tetrarch. So whenever we hear the word Herod in the Bible, um, the question we need to ask ourselves is, which one? Uh, there, there are a number of Herods. It's not like the Old Testament. So, so the Old Testament, there's the, the, uh, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is a title. Herod is a family name. Um, so it's not a title, but they, they were sort of a, a, a kingly family with a lot of power. If we can go to the next slide, I'm going to keep it up here. I'm going to, I'm going to ease you into this family little by little. So we are going to sort of, I'm going to present their family tree to you a little bit. Then later, we're going to go a little bit more into it. And then by the end, we're going to be hoping that Mari Povich is here for like the reveal of the paternity test sort of thing. It, 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 it's a mess. I mean, I'm seriously, it, like, I have a confusing family tree, and I just, I, suddenly my family tree seems very simple compared to them. Okay, so we have Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that when Jesus is born, the, the killing of, of, of all of the babies that were born in Bethlehem. Um, <clears throat> he is dead now by the time... Uh, the story that we're reading, he, he's gone, he's off scene, but, but, but he is a powerful man. If, when you, if you go to Israel today and, and you see the, the vastness of his building, his fortresses, um, a, a very, very, very pow- powerful man, hated by the Jews. Um, <clears throat> if I have my genealogy right, he was an idiomite, married to a, a Samaritan um, and so, so in practical terms, with the Jewish people, he was essentially, in modern-day terms, was an Arab um, that, that was married to, a, to sort of a half-Jew that had sort of gone away from the Jewish faith, and they were hated for a, n- a number of reasons. Um, very treacherous family. Um, it was said that you, it was safer to be a, a pig in the family than to be a spouse or a child or a parent because... They were all killing each other. He had a number of sons. He had, he had children, multiple wives all over. The, like we're not, continue, we're not following his whole genealogy. Um, for, for the sake of today, we're interested in four of his sons. These three are included because the three of them are in the scriptures. This guy, Aristobulus, he is not found anywhere in the New Testament. However, he has children 
that are in the New Testament. So we have Herodias, we have Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was in Acts chapter 12 who had this big day where he said that he wanted to be worshipped sort of thing. Uh, God struck him down by the time he said it. It was like entrails came out filled with worms, that guy. <clears throat> he, had, he had then some children, Herod Agrippa II. We have Bernice and we have Drusilla. And, and so we'll, we'll just sort of, this is sort of the players. Oh, today's story. This is the Herod that we're talking about, Herod Antipas or Antipas. Uh, it always reminds me of pasta for some reason. I don't know, uh, pesto or something. Herod Antipas, he, uh, or Herod the Tetrarch. The, the Tetrarch means that he literally ruled four parts. And so uh, the, the, the part that he was responsible for, he, was sort of a, he wasn't a king. He, uh, he longed for power, um, <clears throat> but he ruled that his responsibility was the responsibility of the Galilee region, not just the Sea of Galilee, but the whole region of, of the Galilee region. So, so we're introduced to him. So at this time, and I said that he lived in Tiberias, which is sort of like the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so we read at this time, at this season, dur- during these occurrences, like around when Jesus went to the Na- Nazareth, um, not necessarily in chronological order, this, this is sort of a transitional point in, in, in Matthew um, or, or in our story, maybe not in the whole book of Matthew. Um, at, at that time, Kairos, Herod the Tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus, he's getting close to his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus has been doing all sorts of stuff. Um, miracles have happened. Great crowds have followed Jesus. But we're told that Herod the Tetrarch as close as he is, literally walking distance to the the home base of Jesus' earthly ministry, um, he he hadn't heard of Jesus. Um, He, in all of the the Gospels, in all of the places that Jesus went, there's no account of Jesus ever going to Tiberias, and there's a lot of speculation for why that is. Like, because it was a total pagan city, that it was ruled by Herod, that this guy was a treacherous man. Some speculate, well, Jesus, there was no reason for him to go there until, like, like there just wasn't any reason for it. Um, some also speculate it could be a combination of all of them that, that Herod is, like, just this rich, rich, rich guy with a huge palace that didn't really come out of the walls, and so it was really easy for him to sort of miss day-to-day life and what was going on in the Jewish world because he didn't really care about the Jewish world. He was there by Rome. He, he, he represented Rome. But eventually, a good distance into Jesus' ministry, he, he finally gets word. He hears, about, he hears about this Jesus guy that sort of has crowds following him, that, 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 that there's some sort of uproar about Jesus. The news is spreading. And he said to his servants, this is Herod, said to his servants, <clears throat> this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. So we have to pause there. So if, if we have been good students of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been reading just the Gospel of Matthew with our blinders onto the other Gospels, we would be, whoa, 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 whoa. John died? Did I miss something? And we start going through our pages of, the, of Matthew, going, wait, 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 wait. I, I didn't hear anything about him dying. 
Last we heard about him was back in, in Matthew chapter 11. He's, we, we, we heard that he's in prison. We know that he's in jail. And he sent his disciples to Jesus. Sort of, He has some doubts. And he says, go find out if Jesus is indeed the promised one, the one who I've been sort of telling about. And Jesus tells his, John's disciples, you've heard everything, that people are risen from the dead, all of these things. These are all signs to authenticate who I am. You go tell John who, that, that you've seen these things, you've heard these things, and yes, Jesus is the one that you have been the forerunner to. But for now, all we see is this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers work within him. And so this guy is paranoid. He'd, he'd murdered an innocent man. Uh, he, he, but the thing is, like, he'd murdered all kind of people. Like, I, I can't even keep the story straight, but I think he murdered, like, a wife. He murdered a son. He murdered maybe even his mom. Like, he just, like, murdered all kinds of people. He's a cold-blooded sort of killer that was terrible. Anybody who threatened his power, they were, they were, do away with them. But there's something about John the Baptist that haunted him. He couldn't shake his death. And now this Jesus he's hearing is doing all these miraculous things. And he's like, man, I killed John the Baptist. And now John the Baptist is back in Jesus' body. And I'm being, like, this guy's haunting me. This is the explanation he has to explain what's going on with Jesus. Now, now, verses 3 through 12, this is what's called a literary flashback. If we were watching a movie, the story would be developing. You know, the movie starts out, you're, you start out with this scene. And you're trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of a sudden, it's, it, the screen sort of fades to black. And then in letters on the bottom, it says one year prior. And then you kind of go back. And then they tell you the story to kind of get you caught up to where you're listening. This is what uh, verses 3 through 12 um, is. is a, is a literary flashback, but it's a weird literary flashback in the sense that by chapter 13, we have the flashback, but then Matthew kind of keeps the story moving, and he doesn't really, like, tie it up. So I don't know exactly where the flashback ends, and then, like, modern day, or not, like, it picks up. But we'll get into that. So we have this flashback. Matthew wants to catch the readers up to speed. Like, I know I just, I mentioned John the Baptist's death. Everybody's wondering, how, like, what's the deal with that? And so we read in verse 3, for when Herod had John arrested. He bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Okay. Round number two of the family. We have three rounds to go in this. So we have Herod the Tetrarch. We have his brother, Philip. We're introduced to Herodias. The scripture says, he, the scripture records Herodias as being the wife of Philip. I'll also point out that Herodias is the daughter of one of their brothers. So, so this is a niece of both Herod the Tetrarch and Philip. 
Herodias is married to Philip. They find themselves in Rome. If I had the, st- the stories, like I said, it's like watching Jerry Springer trying to sort through. So Philip and Herodias are in Rome. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, goes to Rome. They, they sort of concoct a plan. Let's leave our spouses and sort of run away together, and let's get married to one another. So Herod leaves his wife. She leaves her husband, which happens to be his brother, and is also the daughter of another brother. So they get married. They move down to the Sea of Galilee in the region of, of Tiberias, uh, near, this, near the Jordan River. Now John the Baptist is, it comes on scene. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. He's, uh, you know, make way f- uh, for the Lord. Like, make your path straight. Uh, the, the, the baptism of repentance. That he's challenging people's sins. Like, calling them out loud. Like, just naming their sins publicly. Herod hears about John because this is closer to his region. He goes, he basically goes down there, and at one point, basically John the Baptist just starts yelling at him. Now Herod the Tetrarch and and John the Baptist in the story are they are polarized with one another. They're, they're, they're pictures. John the Baptist is a man who only cares about what God thinks about him and isn't concerned about what man thinks about him, even if it costs him his life. Herod, on the other hand, is afraid of everybody. He makes his decisions based on fear, makes his decisions. He's afraid of the people uprising. He's afraid of what his wife will think. He's afraid of all the people. He's afraid of his authorities above him. Uh, He functions in fear. And so they're sort of pitted against one another in this story. Herod is being challenged by this prophet in the, the, the river of Jordan, basically saying, you're sleeping with your brother's wife, and that is wrong. He is challenging this man who is known for widespread murders and execution. Anybody who challenged him, they were toast. John the Baptist doesn't care. He's a prophet. He's trying to get men's heart right with God. Doesn't care that he's the king. He starts challenging the king. As the story develops and it's kind of I'm, I'm mixing it together like he's under arrest. We're, we're told later that like Herod the Tetrarch was sort of like, while he didn't like what he was saying, he was super intrigued by, by this man. And he would, he would visit him in jail and let him talk to him and tell a story, and he was fascinated. However, this Herodias, she was, she was not happy about this. She had a deep anger that she, this powerful woman, would, that somebody would have the audacity to challenge uh, the, the way she lived her life. Uh, I forget who said it, but, you know, hell, hell, no, hell knows no wrath like a woman scorned. <laughs> like, so this is, like, so we are seeing Herodias in her just brutalness. Um, so we know that it's because of her that John the Baptist was taken into custody. Um, she wanted him killed, but Herod the Tetrarch, he feared the people, and so he spared John the Baptist's life. So he sort of had him in custody. He didn't harm him because he didn't want an uprising because the, like, there's the people he'd have to deal with, and then he'd also have to deal with the emperor in Rome. 
And his responsibility is to keep the calm there. So, so the way that he can sort of appease everybody is just, I'll just kind of keep John the Baptist locked up in jail. Okay, so we'll p- pick up in verse 4. I talked about a lot of stuff already. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. That's uh, Herodias. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter, this is Salome, which gets your, this is where we need to bring out Mari Povich in the paternity test. Um, Salome, the daughter of Herodias, danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. The Gospel of Mark, Mark records that he said, up to half my kingdom. Okay, back to this flow chart here. It's okay if you're a little confused. There's like incest and drama and like this is a soap opera that existed. So we're now inter- we're, we're introduced to Herodias' daughter. Now, it's not in Scripture, but Josephus and a, a number of the, the historians during that era, her daughter Salome... The father was actually her nephew, Herod Agrippa. Now, she's all over the place, and I don't know how they had, but I would like to see a paternity test um, to see whose child this Salome is. But according to Josephus, according to like a bunch of different historians, and then the nail in the coffin is Wikipedia says it's so. Um, So we start out at these four brothers. Well, it really starts with dad. Dad was just crazy. He has this whole mess, begins with him. He has this one son. This son has a daughter. Or no, this, yeah, a son and a daughter. So niece connects with uncle, leaves uncle for another uncle, Herod. By the time she's with Herod, the uncle, she already has a child that is actually from her nephew. It's a total mess. This is an evil, wicked, terrible family. And so now we're told that Herod is having his birthday party. Um, don't think birthday, like, so this is like February's like our slew of birthday parties. Grace's birthday's tomorrow. Can't believe she's turned 10. And... And, you know, we're going to get together, we're going to have cupcakes, and we're going to have, you know, like lemonade, and we'll have a little party, it'll be fun, we'll have gifts, we'll exchange, we'll go home, we'll, you know, it's simple. So don't think birthday party like Herod went to Chuck E. Cheese sort of thing. Like this is not, um, there was a phrase, uh, Herodias dies, which in Latin means Herod's birthday. It came to be a proverb for excessive orgastic festivals. In those days, the Roman held stag birthday parties. All the birthday parties were stag parties where only men came. Uh, they were gluttonous, drunken brawls, and climaxed by women who came and danced immoral, lewd, seductive dances. Then it became an orgy. It was Herod's birthday. It lasted for days. The Jews found birthday parties to be absolutely repulsive. They would stay clear that they had nothing to do with them, frowned upon. So it's Herod's birthday. Who knows how long this lasted? He ate, he drank, everybody's wasted. Then his stepdaughter, who is also his great niece, is prompted by mom 
who is Herod's wife and also niece. Mom tells daughter to go have a seductive dance before stepdad, great uncle. See if you can woo him. All of his buddies are totally drunk and wasted and see if you can dance in a way that you provoke him and excite him to the extent that he'll do something totally foolish. (laughs) Awesome, Mom. Good plan. So this daughter does this. She danced for them in verse 6. She she pleased Herod so much so that he promised an oath to give her whatever she asked. Mark tells us up to half the kingdom. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. So at this point, if Herod was a reasonable man, he could have said, time out. I'm drunk. When I said I give you up to half the kingdom, like I, I meant like, do you want a new car or something? Like, like do you, uh, we're not executing John the Baptist. Like this is foolish. But because he was so fearful of, of, of people, this is in verse 9, although he was grieved, and there's a difference between being like, like grieved because you got caught, grieved because you got a, a pickle, and like really repenting and changing, that you can, you can sin, you can make a mistake, you can err, you can be grieved. And I think at that moment, then we have this fork in the road, we can do what is right, or we, or we can follow through. But he's so far into this. Although he was grieved, the king commanded to be given because of the oaths and because of his, his dinner guest. I don't want to be a bad host. I don't want to disappoint. I gave my word in front of all these people. And so then we're told that, that he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and then she brings it to mommy. Now, now Salome at this point is believed that she was like 16 or 17 years old. Um. These people were so sort of chasing the Joneses of the time, so power hungry that this in in many ways was sort of a a copycat crime. Um, This is what one, like historians say, when Herod, when the head of uh, Cercera was brought to Fulvia, the wife of Antony, she spat on it and pulled its tongue out and she drove her hairpin through it Jerome says that that is what Herodias did when the head of John, uh, we can't verify that, but we know that Herod's family seemed to want to mimic all of the worst atrocities of the Roman nobility. It must have been a point of derision and mocking that dear, godly, faithful man and his head severed from his body, that is the extent of rejection that comes under the pressure of fear of man. He was able to lose his throne. He was afraid to lose his throne, afraid of John, afraid of his wife, afraid of the people around him. Under the intimidation of that, he damned his soul to hell forever. So we have this story that's thought that she did all of this stuff, mimicking uh, what Antony did. And then we're told his disciples, it's not Jesus' disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, They came and removed 
John's headless body. And so there seems to be some inherent in his, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but he allowed for his disciples to come and say, hey, come get his headless body, do, do your proper burial. Um, they do that, and then they reported it to Jesus. And then in verse 13, the first part, it says, now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And so we see that Jesus is, um, they say that he's mourning, like he's deeply like sorrowful over like what had happened, to see the, the, the vial of sinfulness. And so that's our text for today. <laughs> um, when I look at this story between Nazareth and this tragic, horrible, disgusting sort of end to John the Baptist's life, we, we see these, these people groups rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Um, the, 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 this whole story of Herod and his like inbred, sinful, disgusting family can show how off course society can get when untethered from God. And the way he was living, like that was normal by their cultural standards. The Jews in their society were the oddballs. And so in many ways, we as followers of Christ live in a culture that is so far detached that we stand out as total oddballs by wanting to live our lives in a way that, uh, that pleases God. When I look at this story of, of basically Herod the Great, who had everything, and you see his family lineage, I, um, it, it really is sad. And I, I think that we need to see that Satan, what he wants to do first and foremost is to, to utterly mess up your life. Like, he wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your family unit. He, he, he wants to whittle in. And it doesn't look like, oh, big, scary boogeyman. It looks like, oh, this looks like fun. This, this seems harmless. And I look at this, this whole story, and I look at my crazy, like, my, my family tree is a total mess. And I think it's easy to, to look and say, well, I'm so messed up and I come from this. Like, you, you don't have to repeat your family cycle. You can stand up and you can stand for God. You can give your life to God. You can say, I, it doesn't matter how old I am. It doesn't matter the mess that, I, that I've created. It doesn't matter the mess that my parents passed on to me. I don't have to go down this road. I can live for God. I can walk with God. And God is a God who forgives, who heals, who, who, who in one passage in the Old Testament says that, that, that as locusts is eaten the field, that God can restore that, that he can bring healing. And so as I read this story, and as rough as it is, like, like my prayer is that we as a body of Christ, we as a congregation, that, that we would commit our lives to the Lord, that we would be fully committed to him, that we wouldn't be sold out, that we wouldn't be halfway that, that we would grow deeper with him in, in a passionate, real way, that we as a body would, would link arms together and support one another and help each other out because the world we live in is off and is askew and is hard and it's easy to get pulled off course. 
And I pray that we would be deeply burdened for our community around us. Valley Center is a resilient, hard, isolated people. Like, like people, like in my last eight years of being here, the cowboys who survive, they're like independent, hard-headed, what word am I looking for? They're, they're good old tough boys. They don't, they don't need help from anybody, including God. And so I pray that our hearts would be deeply burdened for our neighbors, our friends, our family. There's like no Starbucks to hang out in town. There's no like, like we have to just do life and, and, and love on our neighbors and really be involved. Because without God, like Satan is wreaking havoc on our, on our world, on our families, on our nation. It shouldn't surprise us. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are so loving, so kind, so <clears throat> patient with us. Lord, I've seen that, uh, that Christians that uh, re- tend to get um, frustrated with the world so quickly. And Lord, if anybody could get frustrated, it would be you. And yet, Lord, your word throughout speaks of your great patience, your great love, um, your great persistence. And so, Father, I pray that you would, um, Lord, help us never to lose sight of how awesome you are. Lord, and it's by your grace that we've been changed. It's by your grace that our families are held together or have been restored. Uh, It's by your grace that in our sinfulness, the mistakes we've made, and maybe the, 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 the wake of destruction that we've left in our own lives, Lord, we thank, we're thankful that you are a God who restores, who heals, who gives second, third, fourth, fifth, six hundred thousands of chances, Lord. Lord, as we sung that song earlier today, Lord, I need you. Lord, we are desperate for you. We, we can't do this in our own strength, and our own merit. And so, Father, we ask that your hand would be upon us, that your spirit would guide us, that your spirit would protect us from the evil one who prowls around seeking to destroy us. Father, give us compassionate, forgiving hearts, Lord. Help us to look at our community um, with a desire to reach out to them, to love them, to really invest in people's lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.